coming up on today's show, you've heard of a glass ceiling. What about a glass cliff? And could it be a threat to the women running for leadership of the UCP? The Justin Bone case has shown all kinds of issues and gaps with Alberta's social services system. And could the Liberal Party really replace Justin Trudeau? And if they did, with who? One thing cannot be denied. This is not an old white boys club running for leadership of the UCP. Not at all. Not even close. It is diverse in a number of ways. So it raises some interesting conversation points. We're going to chat now with Dr. Lisa Young, who is a political science professor at the University of Calgary. Dr. Young, thank you for joining us once again. Always nice to chat. Happy to be here. This really is a diverse field of candidates, isn't it? I mean, you, you can take a look at it in any category you want and, and basically come up with somebody who fits that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, gender, uh, more than anything else, um, if we assume that Michelle Rempel-Garner is joining the race, which I think she is, um, there's going to be more female candidates than male, which is you know pretty remarkable. Yeah. It is, yeah. And I mean, so, I mean, the glass ceiling, uh, I think it's changed over the last, I mean, it still exists. Like, believe me, I think if you become leader of a a political party or, you know, a premier or a prime minister, whatever the case may be, you've you've jumped over a lot more hurdles than a man would to get to that position. I think there's, you know, you, you face the typical challenges plus some added ones on top of it. But we're seeing it more often in Canadian politics. So when we talk about the glass ceiling, okay, let's set that to the side, especially in this race. What about this glass cliff that you talk about? It was new to me. Sure. Well, this is an idea that actually comes out of uh, some business research. And some British researchers uh, were curious why there were female um members of boards of directors in companies that performed badly, that failed. And so they went looking, and what they found was that companies that were in trouble were starting to bring women in to their boards of directors. And so what they, and then they failed. So it looked like it was a consequence of bringing women in, but it was actually that bringing women in was a response to those structural problems in the company in the first place. So they came up with this term of the glass cliff. And when we think about it, we can think of examples from Canadian politics where this has happened, right? Think about Kim Campbell. Um, You know, the old Progressive Conservative Party was in desperate trouble. They chose a new leader. She was new. She was different. And she lost in in a terrible uh, way in the 1993 federal election. Yeah, absolutely obliterated. Um, so what is it? Is this some dastardly plan, Lisa, to, to hand off this ticking time bomb of sorts to, to the woman coming into the leadership role and uh, sort of run out the door and leave them with the mess to clean up? Is it a conspiracy? No, I'm, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, and I don't <laughs> think that the evidence uh, would support it here. I think that what you see is that organizations that think that they're in trouble, that know that they're in trouble, say to themselves, gosh, we need to do things differently, right? The way that we're doing things right now isn't working. Let's do something different. And that absolutely can work, right? But there are situations in which doing something differently doesn't address the structural problems that the organization faces. So it can set, you know, a new leader, a female leader up for failure if the fundamentals aren't addressed. Gotcha. Now, but it's not a foregone conclusion that that's what's going on in every instance. I mean, our last premier, um, 
was female, of course, as everybody knows, has been a leader for a very, very long time, so wasn't sort of handed over the keys to a failing enterprise. I mean, we have instances where we have women who have actually built political parties and companies into ongoing concerns bigger and better than when they got there, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I want to be really clear that this isn't saying, oh, you know, the if, if the UCP chooses a female leader, they're, they're doomed, because there's really not a lot of evidence supporting that. I think the point here is to, to look at the situation, because if we look at the state that the UCP is in right now, this is a party that's in some trouble. They're in government. They had, you know, won a big majority, but they've they've had to, uh, you know, have their leaders step down. They're not doing as well in the polls. And so if they do turn to a woman to lead the party, what is it that they're trying to do? And does it address the fundamentals that, that the party is, is challenged by? You know, we talked a bit about the fact that we know women face uh, additional challenges, especially in politics. We've all seen the reports of the, the toxic correspondence. I mean, politics right now is toxic. I mean, if you ask me, jumping in to try and be leader of um, the UCP at this point is either extremely courageous or absolutely crazy. I can't decide which one. I wouldn't want to go near it like, within 100 miles. Um, what, what, why would you jump in at this point, man or woman? Well, that, you know, that's an interesting question. And I think I want to underline something that you said there about how difficult it is to be in politics right now. And we know that that is all the more so for individuals who are, you know, from non-traditional groups, totally. including women. Yeah. And if we think about the, you know, the threats of violence that female politicians receive, including Rachel Notley when she was premier, you know, it really is very troubling. And so to jump in is brave and, you know, you can say potentially foolish. So why? Well, I, I think... You know, the prospect of being Premier of Alberta is pretty appealing. If you've got ideas that you want to, um, you know, try to move forward in the political realm, there, there's no better place, really, than from the Premier's chair. Um, certainly, I think that uh, the candidates who are entering the race must think that the party's fundamentals are good enough that in a, you know, a year from now they can turn things around and, and be sure that the party uh, can get reelected. Um I, I think for some of the candidates, especially, you know, the, the women who've been in cabinet, there, there may also be an effort here to really underline some of the patterns of exclusion that they experienced. Um, you know, we're certainly hearing things from these candidates about how, you know, cabinet was a boys club and they were on the margins. Now, that might be partially that they're trying to distance themselves, mm -hmm. yep. but there certainly was a really kind of boys club feel to the, the Kenny government at various moments. Yeah, we did hear uh, reports of that for sure. It's going to be very interesting to watch, Lisa, and uh, we'll be relying on you to help guide us through all of it as we go. Thanks so much for your time today. talked about this case before. Uh, I've been meaning to, and I'm sure you've heard of it, the case of Justin Bone uh, in the Edmonton area. It's, uh, it's a tragic case that has brought to light all kinds of different ways that the quote-unquote system failed failed a lot of people. Bone is charged with killing two men in Edmonton's Chinatown district back in May. Middle of May this happened. 
um, a month after Bone had been released from the remand center. He has a lengthy criminal record that goes back a long, long way. Now, when he was released from the remand, his conditions of release prohibited him from traveling to Edmonton alone. He was not allowed to be in Edmonton unsupervised. Uh, He did turn up in Edmonton, obviously, but he didn't get there on his own. He actually got a ride from the RCMP. Um, The family member that was responsible for his supervision out at Alberta Beach, just west of Edmonton, called police saying they wanted Bone removed from the home. Okay, so he'd been staying with a family member as part of his release not to travel to Edmonton unsupervised. Whatever happened that night at Alberta Beach happened. The family member that was, quote-unquote, supervising Bone said, I don't want to do this anymore. He needs to leave. So RCMP took him to West Edmonton and dropped him off. Um, It's being described as in an area where uh, close to where he might be able to receive services. He might, he he was um, taken to an area where he could get so uh, near a social services hub is what they're calling him. But three days later, two men were dead, boned back in custody and charged with their murders. Now, those are the broad strokes, but there's a lot of other wrinkles that we'll talk about. He was supposed to enter addiction to treatment, for example. No space. So that's why he ended up with the family member. And there's all kinds of things and questions being raised. So we're going to chat now with Mark Charrington, who's with the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, a nonprofit that helps marginalized people in Edmonton, deals with cases just like Justin Bone. Mark, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Shay. I think this case for a lot of people is a real eye-opener and a real, what happened here? How unusual is what happened with Justin Bone uh, in, in other cases, or is this something that we've seen before many times? Well, I've seen it a lot of times. It's it's certainly not atypical in my experience. It's unfortunately a fact of the environment that we're living in, um, we talk a lot about uh, physical structures, uh, infrastructures such as bridges and roads, but there's also social infrastructure, and that has been pushed aside and off politicians' radar for many years. And what's happened is it's crumbled and now it's collapsed. So we have a huge homeless issue problem. We have no spaces in addiction centers. Um, I mean, the waiting lists, at least the ones I'm working with, are sometimes eight, ten weeks. Um, You know, there's no social housing to speak of. All those bridge funding programs that uh, dealt with homelessness um, during COVID have all dried up and collapsed. Um, They're no more. So we shoveled all these people onto the streets. Right. And you just have to walk down Jasper Avenue or 97th Street or any back alley, and, and it's it's you're seeing all this tragedy, all these people, just nowhere to go, nothing to do, suffering from mental health issues, addictions, traumatized through violence, you know, pick your poison. There's no doubt we're facing a crisis, and we're hearing about it all the time with the the issues that are happening, not only in Edmonton, but in Calgary, all, all the big centres. Um, when we take a look at the Bone case in particular, I mean, how many times and how many ways can the system fail? I mean, first of all, let's start with the ability, the inability to get him the services he needed right out the door of the remand. He was supposed to go to addiction services, but there were none. So right from the very get-go, Mark, we're behind the eight ball here. Well, and there's a communication gap between the courthouse and the streets. And, um, you know, uh, everybody, I mean, I want to say that everybody involved in homelessness or in the criminal justice system 
has good intentions. At least the, the, the vast majority of people have good intentions and want to help people. But there's a communication gap between the streets and the courthouse. And there's, you know, there's lots of reasons behind it. Uh, the justice navigators with legal aid at one time were allowed to assist people in appointments and that, and now they just sort of click and point, um, you know. Um, so we have this communication breakdown. The Crown Defence Council, they're not up to speed with the exact sort of, you know, way it is, the boots on the ground yeah, sort yeah. of look. So that we have that communication breakdown, and that leads to assumptions that our addiction centres are open and and willing to take anybody that's pers- subscribed to them and it doesn't happen um in the instance here where okay he's been released he can't access the addiction services so he's put into the supervision of a family member okay um the the, the next step that I, I i don't know have you seen this before is this is this a common practice where okay he can't stay with the family member anymore so police i mean and not necessarily you know social services not necessarily the police responsibility but it it, it seems to me really inadequate to say we're going to take you close to a social services hub where you can access um, services and, and drop you off. Is that the standard procedure? Is that the plan? Uh, I don't. I, I can more comment with the Edmonton. I, I I don't think so. I don't believe that anybody um, um, understanding um, you know the person that they had in the back of the police cruiser uh, should have been dropped off. At least in my personal opinion, anywhere. Um, but that leaves the police with the question. So what do we do? What do we them? do with them? Yeah. Yeah. It's not that he's he's um, unwilling to comply with his conditions. It's just that he's unable. And a lawyer can certainly comment more on that last sentence than than I can. So what do you do with this human being? And this is where you see the gaps and the and the destruction and the collapse of our social infrastructure system. And this is the. Our, our provincial government owns this. This is their their jurisdiction. And they have underfunded housing and homelessness uh, for a number of years. And it's a crisis. We need social housing. We need bed space and addiction centers. It is a simple formula. It is easy to correct. You have to put money into this problem and deal with it. And, you know, when you cut budgets, when you are your government of austerity, this is sort of the... This is what comes to be in fruition, you know, and, and we, need, we need funding for social infrastructure. That I, I can't say that enough. I mean, is, that, is, is it that simple, Mark, when you take a look at it? Like you say, I mean, it, it it's, seems systemic, like the number of agencies that were involved and, and it all seemed to just be inadequate across the board. Where, where do we start? I mean, we know that it's a crisis situation, as you clearly pointed out, and we've seen in so yeah. many other stories. Where do we start today? How do we, I mean, it's, it's, it's at that point of urgency now. Okay, so we need we need boots on the ground. Uh, we're using first responders to deal with this problem, and this is, in my opinion, the most ineffective and expensive way to deal with it. We need we need social workers, we need child and youth care workers, we need people uh, uh, out on the streets helping these people, ensuring that they're fed, dealing with these mental health crises as they as they bloom. Uh, we need. Uh, we need areas where people can rest and sleep, uh, even during the day. I mean, they're all they're all sleeping in back alleys. So we need we need programs like uh, you know uh, 
drop-in centers that are open all day and all night that people can come, you know, and, and, and be engaged with addiction workers and mental health workers and housing workers. Uh, and the other big thing we need to do is we can do right away is we need to, to really look at the ID, issue of ID. People without ID are at a, have an extreme barrier to get any services. And most of the people that I'm dealing with that are homeless have no ID. And there's no process to really get that going because there's a cost associated with it. There's this bureaucracy and paperwork associated with it. And it has to be there. But you need someone to get these people ID. And we have a program at the Royal Alec Hospital, but it certainly doesn't cover the scope of a, a city of a million people. Yeah, and and as you say, we're we're in a deficit position. So I mean, it's not even dealing with a city of a million people. It's playing catch up and then being in a position to sort of sustain it for a city of a million people. And what's happening is is we have all this social infrastructure deficits in all these smaller communities. So these smaller communities are gravitating their 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 people that are having these barriers, and they're pushing them into the city. And it's causing this. And, and, you know, our solution right now is we have a government-sanctioned shantytown, <laughs> you yeah, know, a yeah. tent city. You know, we will build a shantytown here because we have no other solution, because we have no funding and we have no housing. And it's a disgrace. And, we, and, and it, you know, this provincial government owns this. They own this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that strategy you're talking about. Well, it's not just one shantytown, Mark. We're going to spread them out so they don't get too big. We'll we'll have a few different ones. But yeah, I hear exactly yeah. what you're saying. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. When will we head to the polls next for a federal election? Tough to say. For sure in about three years, okay? We know that. That's that's when it has to happen. No later than kind of a thing. But with a minority parliament, it realistically could end any day. They usually last a couple of years. And whenever we do see the writ drop, there's another question. Will Justin Trudeau lead the Liberals into that campaign? Truth be told, I was a little surprised he was still around in the last campaign. I mean, if you take a look at a federal leader and baggage and scandal and areas that he can be attacked on the campaign trail, uh, he's got them all. But lo and behold, he did lead the party into the election and they won, albeit minority government. And it might say more about the state of the conservative party at that time than anything else. But regardless, will he go into the next election as leader of the Liberals? Does he even want to? Uh, for this conversation, we're joined now by Campbell Clark, who's the chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. So, uh, I mean, at this point, are you kind of uh, like me, somewhat maybe a little bit surprised that Justin Trudeau is actually still the leader of the Liberal Party to begin with? Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not really. Um, it's not going to be easy to replace him for the Liberal Party. I think people will think, you know, it's not been terribly successful the last yeah. two uh, uh, goes round in the sense that he won minorities. And I think that too. But when you think about it, that doesn't necessarily make it easy to replace him, especially since he's been there so long. And, and actually, I, I wrote a column about how hard it is to replace him because people are saying, you know, it looks like the end is nigh for Justin Trudeau. There's been a spate of commentaries about how things are going badly yeah. for him. And that's what got me thinking that, you know, badly or not, it's not going to be easy to replace him um, for the Liberal Party. And there's a few reasons for that. Yeah, let's take a look at that. First of all, you need a replacement. You need somebody that can step into those shoes. And you take a look around, and obviously the name that springs to mind is Christian Freeland. But beyond, I mean, is there a replacement? Is someone waiting in the wings when you look at the federal Liberal Party? 
So, uh, in a way, it's kind of surprising that there isn't someone waiting in the ranks, right? Wings, sorry. You know, if it, after two minorities, they got 31.5% popular vote the last time, you'd think that there would be, if not plans to replace some people plotting. Yeah. And there are people doing low level sort of uh, positioning for a leadership campaign. There's a half a dozen or so liberals doing that, some more than others. But, you know, Christian Freeland's profile been very high. Uh, there's others like François-Philippe Champagne, the uh, innovation minister, and um, the, people talk about Melanie Jolie a little bit. Mark Carney has been raised, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England. So there are people that are... Kicking you know, the tires, so uh, to speak. Talk, yes, or talked about. But, you know, it's going to be hard, and Christy Freeland's the best example of this, to, for anyone to replace Justin Trudeau without being seen as Justin Trudeau's replacement, you know, just another Justin Trudeau liberal, because Christian Freeland has been side by side with uh, Justin Trudeau on almost every stage, and she is responsible for quarterbacking a big part of the Trudeau liberal agenda that's seen as the Trudeau liberal agenda. So how do you replace Justin Trudeau with somebody, well, pretty much everyone thinks is what is, you know, his uh, right-hand person, But but is that a good thing or a bad thing, though, Campbell? Because, I mean, he he has won three elections. Okay, he hasn't won majorities in the last two, and it's been, you know, embattled along the way. But he has won three elections. So do you want to change direction? So, look, this is one of the other things is that there aren't a lot of political performers. And I know some people will uh, hate to hear this. But there aren't a lot of political performers better than Justin Trudeau who can, you know, handle themselves in a press conference and uh, work a room and charm people. And while he has really high levels of negatives in some places in the country, has he still has like a core vote. And, you know, that that 31.5% was pretty solid the last time, wasn't going anywhere. And I guess the point is, if you're going to be selling the Justin Trudeau agenda again, is there really someone better to do that than Justin Trudeau? And maybe not. Certainly, I wonder if that will convince Justin Trudeau that it's a good thing to stick around for the next election. Correct me if I'm wrong. He has sort of said he might not, right? I mean, that... No, he, he has said when asked that he will run in the next election. Okay, okay. But what else would you say, right? That leaders of political parties and prime ministers have a, have a difficult time answering that question in a thoughtful way because... <laughs> Once you say I'm going, you pretty much uh, fired the starting gun for the next leadership race. And once you do that, as we've seen in previous incarnations of uh, liberal uh, liberal leadership politics, once you do that, your government sort of scatters to the four winds while everyone's fighting over replacing you. So <laughs> you have to be very careful about saying I'm going to quit if you're a prime minister in office. How do the opposition parties fit into this? Because, like, I mean, you look at the Conservatives and the state that they're in, and I don't know if he feels particularly threatened by them, at least not today. Maybe in a year it'll be a different situation. But right now I don't think he feels a lot of pressure from there. He's sort of got the NDP sewn up. Um, How big of a factor is that in terms of his level of comfort? It's a very big uh, factor, actually. I mean, you look at the supply and confidence arrangement, with the NDP yeah. that made a parliamentary alliance between the two parties that's supposed to keep them for three years. First of all, that is buying him a lot of time, right, to make decisions and to see what happens. So that was a, that'll be a big factor because it means he's not forced to worry about whether the plug will be pulled in six months. But he also doesn't can't guarantee that it's going to be three years, right, because alliances do fall apart at times, especially if it's in the political interests of 
one party or the other to make them fall apart. So he, you know, you can't be sure it's going to last three years either. But that NDP deal gives him some time to see how it's going to make some calculations. The Conservative Party, that'll make a big difference too, because really the way, the only way a an incumbent prime minister is going to win a fourth election is if people are scared about the alternative, right? So if, for example, the leader is Pierre Polyev, and I think that's very likely, the thing he'll want to see is, will New Democrat supporters from previous elections be willing to support the Liberals just to stop a Conservative from taking power? I mean, the voters, not the the party and the leader of the NDP, but the voters supported the NDP in the past. That's basically the way the Liberals, they hope the Liberals have to stay in power. And maybe, if he sees that that's happening, he'll take a look at that and say, well, I'm the best person to keep the Liberal Right, yeah. Together. To keep that so lock. I'm the best performer here, so might as well give it a try. I don't know, but I think one of the things about this that's kind of worth thinking about is it won't be easy for the Liberal Party to change, even if they think things are going poorly. You know, if things look like, oh, no, we're not at 32% or 34% in the polls, we're at 27%, it's not easy to make that switch. The NDP deal kind of bought them some time to make a decision about I guess you'd call it succession planning if it were a business, but it's not going to be easy to find somebody who's not, you know, a Justin Trudeau liberal who served in his cabinet for the last six or seven years or is not tightly defined as being somebody who's been, you know, part of that agenda. That's that's difficult. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Campbell, interesting discussion. And of course, all we can do is sit back and watch and see how it all plays out. But it's uh, it's fun to speculate. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.